This is the Issues on Appeal podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Diker. This is episode nine, Nothing Rhymes with Supersedious. Thanks for joining me. Each week, we'll be talking about Florida appellate practice through discussions with members of Florida's appellate community. And usually, that means lawyers. But my guest this week is a little bit different. It's actually my first non-lawyer guest on the show. Dan Huckabee is a appellate bond specialist and the president of Commercial Surety Bond Agency, and he's going to talk to us about supersedious bonds and the process for obtaining one. It's kind of a deep dive. I think you'll like it. My interview with Dan is coming up next. Dan, so thank you for joining me on the Issues on Appeal podcast. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So although I would say that you and your company are definitely a part of the Florida appellate community that we talk to so often, you actually work out of California, right? That's correct. Uh, Orange County, California. So tell me a little bit about your company, Commercial Surety Bond Agency. Uh, The company was started in 1984. Uh, I wasn't the original founder. I'm actually the second owner and currently president of the company. Uh, We're uh, specialists in surety bonds in general, but more specifically, we have a very large focus in appeal bonds nationally in all state and federal courts. And uh, one of the larger providers of appeal bonds to appellate attorneys in the country. And so that's really the reason you're on the show, of course, is that uh, your company issues a lot of appellate bonds in Florida. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that process. I think as appellate practitioners, sometimes we we don't deal with appellate bonds all the time. Uh, but when it comes up, it's usually something that's uh, on a short fuse. And I know I've gotten a lot of calls, people asking me about it. So I thought it would be something that would be good to to talk about. And I, it's likely that some of the listeners to the podcast have met uh, Arturo Ayala uh, with your company because you guys have sponsored a few events for the Florida Bar's appellate practice section, and and thank you for for doing that too. But just to be clear, you're not you're not sponsoring this podcast, <laughs> not yet at least, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, now, I generally refer to appeal bonds as supersedious bonds. Is is that terminology you use normally? Yeah, it's it, we, we use it interchangeably uh, depending on the, the state. Um, you'll find you know different terminology used, but supersedious is, is certainly one of the more common. Now, listeners to the podcast will know, but I'm going to talk about just a little bit for context, and you never know who's listening. A, a supersedious bond or an appellate bond is a, it's a type of surety bond that's posted by an appellant who wants to delay payment of a judgment or maybe compliance with that judgment until the conclusion of an appeal, obviously with the hopes of some sort of reversal that they'll maybe never have to pay or comply. And and the bond is really a financial security for the appellee who's already won the case in the trial court to make sure that there's funds available at the conclusion of the appeal. So an appellant doesn't have to post a bond, but if they want the benefit of a stay during the appeal, then a bond is required to protect the appellee from the risk of this delay in, in enforcing the judgment. Does that does that sound like a fair summary? No, you described it perfectly. And, and a lot of times, what I'll say is that, that you know the purpose of these bonds is is that security to the appellee and also to, to really remain this uh, maintain the status quo um, during the appeal. That way, you know the the risk isn't unfairly transferred to the appellee during the the appeal process. 
Yeah, that's sort of analogous to like an injunction bond, something that's to help uh, preserve the status quo while while things get worked out. Right. Now in Florida, this is addressed in a there's a there's a rule rule nine point three ten in the Florida Rules of Appellate Procedure, which I'll link to in the show notes. And that rule says that a judge may require a bond as a condition of a stay, and it provides a procedure for an automatic stay of a purely money judgment. Uh, if the appellant posts a bond in the full amount of the judgment uh, plus two years of interest. So a bond can really be an important strategic tool in the appeal process and, and the legal aspects and strategy aspects of that, I guess, could be a whole other show in the future. But when we get to that point when a bond is needed, that's that's where you come in, right? Correct. And it's, you know, you, you described it well at the beginning where uh, most even seasoned appellate practitioners don't have to deal with bonds all that often. I mean, if you get people that deal with them a couple of times a year, that's probably a lot. And so for most people, they are having to relearn the process very, very quickly and with something that is generally uh, extremely important to the client, because usually you're talking about larger money judgments that are that can be significant uh, relative to their overall worth. And uh, in addition to that, then you, you've got a really limited time frame that these bonds can need to be placed by. So there's, there's a lot that has to be relearned in a very short period of time. Yeah, in Florida, uh, the enforcement of a judgment can start as quickly as uh, 10 days or so. Uh, the judgment becomes final after 10, but it might take a little bit of time to 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 go through that process that you need to actually start collection, but it can happen pretty quickly. Yeah. And that, that's uh, right there. You, you just described that window that people really have for getting these bonds in place in order to ensure that there's no execution on the judgment. So if I'm representing an appellant or, uh, and I know that they are going to need a bond, how do I start that process? The most important thing I would say is to, first of all, start the process early. And it doesn't always mean waiting until the judgment has even been entered or even earlier that in, in the case of, say, a, a jury trial. If you're expecting an adverse uh, result from the jury, then you can start discussions at least uh, prior to those things happening. And really the first step out of the gate would be to contact an agency, um, we're, and I should maybe take a step back to, to kind of give a framework for the, the way these bonds work in the market. We're, our company is a broker, uh, just like a, an insurance broker, and uh, all bonds are written through companies like us. So we just happen to specialize in it, just like you'll have law firms that you know have a, appellate practices uh, or more general litigation practices. Um, there are insurance agents that are more generalists and then there's specialists like our company. And so the first place to really start is to contact a company, an agency that can help to start walk you through the process. So I'm curious, uh, obviously there's a number of different companies you potentially write for on these bonds. Is there, is there, can you give me an idea how many companies out there are writing supersedious bonds? Sure. Uh, they're really in the in the total surety market. There's 
probably a total of a hundred companies nationally that write these types of bonds. Um, really, when it comes down to the ones that do it very well and and do it on a regular basis, there's probably ten. Um, we we represent about thirty of those those hundred and and all of those ten that that really have a specialty uh, in in writing these bonds on a very regular basis. And there's some very nuances among those those active writers of supersedious bonds um, that we can get into more detail, you know, I'm sure later in the podcast. Sure. All right. So how, uh, that was good. I appreciate you, you, you backfilling that. And uh, so when we get to the point that we know that's what we need, how do I start that process? So the, really the first place we always start with the either uh, appellate counsel or client directly is to number one, evaluate whether collateral is going to be required. Um, these bonds, because most appeals are not successful, there's a, a, a high likelihood that the surety company that's providing the supersedious bond will have to pay the FLE, the judgment. Um, Sure. So in, because of that, the, the risk is very high for them, and, and oftentimes these bonds require collateral to secure them. So that's usually the first place that we start is to evaluate whether collateral is, in fact, needed. Um, generally, the surety's evaluation will be pretty simple. It's, it's is the client that is requesting the, the supersedious bond have a financial worth that is overwhelmingly greater than the bond that's needed. <laughs> um, and, and the reason they, they view it that way is there, this is number one, a transactional relationship. So there's, you know, a lot of times there's no other history to base their decision on. And then secondly, they have to determine whether the appellant will have the resources, not just today, but, several years from now when the case is finally decided. So that can be a very hard and murky thing to, to make a decision on. So really they, they err on the side of being very conservative. And so uh, in general, what I would say is most, most situations where the clients qualify without collateral are going to be publicly traded companies, uh, large private corporations and very high net worth individuals where Essentially, the judgment is not a significant portion of their overall net worth. And I don't have specific ratios I can provide because they don't look at it quite that uh, on that basic of a level. But, you know, in general, that's kind of the overall criteria for your typical everyday individual or or small business. Generally, collateral is going to be required. So that's once you just figure out which road you're, you know, we're going to go down then we can really start to get into greater detail about the next step after that. So I do some surety work uh, as well. It's another area that I work in and mostly I, I represent sureties in construction, uh, you know, contract bonds and some miscellaneous bonds. So I understand the surety business a little bit and, you know, it's supposed to be a no risk business, right? In theory, 
Uh, the surety is not at risk because they have full indemnity rights from their principal, which in this case is the is the appellant. But obviously, um, that depends on the quality of your indemnity. And and like you say, this is a very risky proposition. We know that cases, you know, civil cases, the stats vary, but it's roughly eighty percent of the time are affirmed. On appeal, so I could see without collateralization, airtight collateralization, this would be a pretty risky business. So it it certainly makes sense uh, to me that, that that collateral is is the name of the yeah, game. Yeah, and oftentimes, I think two things that people without your background um, have a hard time understanding uh, from the surety's perspective when it comes to the risk they're undertaking is one, uh, what you just described about the the likelihood of winning the appeal. And, and the second is the premium rates that surety companies charge. Um, in, in general, I would say that the rates, they can vary. And again, we'll probably get in more detail. But if you if you take an average of 1%, um, one bond could literally wipe out hundreds of thousands or thousands of bond premiums for that they've earned on other bonds. So the, the um, magnitude of the, the consequences of being wrong one time um, can be very severe unlike insurance where you you're you're adjusting your premium rates to essentially anticipate a certain number of losses if that were the case with supersedious bonds we'd probably be talking about rates in excess of 10 percent maybe even 15 percent um, and that then starts to get into a whole different issue of whether they are affordable and and um, a product that people even want to purchase. Yeah, it's an important distinction. Now we're sort of down the, usually I'm down the geeky uh, appellate uh, rabbit hole. Now we're <laughs> kind of down the geeky surety yeah, right. rabbit hole, but but people will, probably, people will probably find this interesting, but it is one thing that people don't totally comprehend is that uh, sureties are not insurers. And it gets complicated by the fact that a lot of surety bonds are written by companies that also write insurance <laughs> and maybe have insurance in their name. But uh, it's not, it's different, right? And insur insurers are insuring against known risks, and they know that there are going to be losses and that they're not going to be compensated for, and they charge everybody premiums based on that. But kind of the surety business is largely based on the proposition that it's there's not a lot of risk, or there shouldn't be. If the, uh, if the underwriting is done That's right. right. And it's, I mean, really what I always tell people is, is really the surety business is much more similar to the banking business. When you, when, if you look at a letter of credit and the that as an instrument, a financial instrument, and compare it to a surety bond, especially in the case of a supersedious situation, those are much more comparable than any type of insurance product. And um, they're, they're priced very similar, and they're also underwritten very similar. Um, oftentimes, letters of credit require collateral, and it's for the same reasons uh, that they're not insurance products, they're financial products, and uh, and really have a different uh, function in the, in the world that we operate in. So I'm curious now about the underwriting in, in a situation where we've you've made that initial determination that this is not one of the narrow cases of situations where you know we're not going to require 100% collateral. Is there further underwriting done beyond that? Um, are, is is a credit check important if you're if you're getting full collateralization? What, what other kind of things do the underwriters look at in deciding whether to issue the the bond with 100% collateral? So. 
first, it's probably important to talk about the, the types of collateral. There are four types of collateral that are accepted by surety companies for supersedious bonds. Uh, first is cash, which is probably the most commonly known. Uh, then there's bank uh, letters of credit issued by banks. Uh, there's real estate and marketable securities, which is a term we use to refer to stock and bond portfolios that are held in non-retirement accounts. Uh, each of those are mm -hmm. going to have different requirements and information that is needed. Um, I can go down each of those if you'd like, and you know, we can talk about each of those further. Sure. Um, so I guess starting with cash, you know, it, I always like to say with cash, cash is the most well-known but least understood of all the forms of collateral. Um, I say that because oftentimes there will be attorneys uh, who kind of hear cash and automatically think, well, it's just better off to not go through the exercise and post the cash at the court. Um, there are instances where that can be true, but what is not very well known is a lot of times uh, insurers will pay interest on the cash deposits, whereas a lot of courts either pay no interest or very nominal interest. You've even come across certain courts across the country that actually charge to hold the cash. So, um, <laughs> and in those right. cases, obviously it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to, to post the cash with the court. So the, the interest can vary depending on the interest rate environment. Um, I would say it, it ranges between one and one and a half percent that the uh, client will earn on the cash wallet is in the account. And the premium rates are generally in that same range. Um, for very small bonds, it might be up to 2%, but I would say the average is probably three quarters of a percent to one and a half percent. And the, the rate will range depending on the amount of cash that's in the account um, and, and the size of the bond ultimately. So uh, in theory, the, the client can really cover the cost of the bond by the interest they're earning uh, on the cash while it's deposited and uh, sometimes even earn mm -hmm. in excess of that. We also have a, a program through a brokerage where client de can deposit cash and invest in things like U.S. Treasuries, which pay higher rate of interest. Currently, roughly 2.3% uh, is what's being earned on those short-term treasuries. So in those cases, again, you know, if the premium rate, depending on the size of the bond, is 1% or three quarters, they might earn, you know, a, a spread in excess of, of one and a half percent uh, on the money while it's sitting there. So that's probably one of the main points I would uh, talk about with, with cash and why it's something that, you know, is, is good to be considered. Um, in terms of the underwriting requirements with when using cash, the, the only specific thing that some sureties will occasionally require is a personal financial statement or company financial statement, depending on the source of the cash. And they do that sometimes when there are any concerns over uh, the bankruptcy preference laws, because there have been situations where cash has been deposited as collateral mm -hmm. and then bankruptcy court has come and uh, taken that collateral from the, the surety company. So not all surety companies require it and, and not an all circumstances. Um, so, but outside of that, it really, for all bonds, the general information we're gathering is a copy of the court complaint, judgment, and notice of appeal if it's been filed. And then 
really getting into these specific areas of collateral. Um, I guess one final one final thing I should say before going into these other areas that's important context is all of these forms of collateral can potentially be used in combination with one another. Uh, so they're not, it, it's not an all or nothing mm -hmm. proposition. And uh, there are also times where one form can be used initially and then later substituted. And cash is another example of that, uh, where the time frame might be short and there's another form of collateral that we'll discuss that's more desired, but they just, the time isn't there to allow for that to be uh, used. And so cash can be used initially and then potentially one of these other forms of collateral that we'll discuss can maybe later be substituted. Uh, okay. So the right. uh, second form of collateral is uh, letters of credit from a bank. Uh, kind of as I touched on earlier, for those who may be listening that aren't familiar with letters of credit, they are essentially a, a, a promise to pay uh, that are provided by banks, essentially just saying we will make available a certain amount of funds that can be drawn upon at any time. The beneficiary is the surety company in those cases, and the letter of credit would be issued in the same amount that the the bond is issued in. And so the instead of actually handing over the funds to the surety company, they the uh, surety company gets a letter or instrument from a bank saying that they can draw upon it if, in fact, they they need to because of a claim or potential claim. Uh, they, the surety companies view those very favorably because they are uh, considered liquid, you know, as, as if they could be uh, drawn upon and, and converted to cash very easily. Uh, the main underwriting that a surety company will do in those scenarios is to really underwrite the bank that's providing the letter of credit. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in the financial crisis uh, in 2008 and nine, there were obviously a lot of banks that uh, didn't survive. And so that's really the the risk to a surety company when taking a letter of credit is, is will the bank be there uh, what, if and when the, the surety company needs to draw upon it. So your major household, you know, names of banks are generally not an issue. And the only time we ever occasionally run into uh, a situation where a surety company might have a little struggle is uh, a very small bank or or uh, local community banks that just are not very well capitalized, uh, especially it, it's going to be considered relative to the size of the letter of credit. Um, but I wouldn't say we run into that very often these days, especially with the financial regulations. Um, banks in general have gotten kind of larger and uh, there's probably fewer and fewer smaller banks. So um, it's not a very common problem, but that's really the only thing we do is just get get the name of the bank. We verify it quickly uh, to make sure it's okay, and then we proceed from there. And we do provide each surety is going to have their own letter of credit wording or format that we will provide to the the client so that they can pass that along to their bank. And the, the, the surety will then need to see a draft of the letter of credit in order to ensure that it meets their requirements. There can be times where banks and, and sureties have some different disagreements over various um, terms that are put in the letter of credit, but it's not very not very often that that's a, a problem or slows the process down, but occasionally it's just something to be aware of that 
there's going to be a, a process there to go through um, in terms of approval by the surety company. Uh, and another thing I would say with letters of credit for people to be aware of is it, it, it they need to be looked at in, in the context of they're essentially a loan. So, you know, if a client doesn't have an existing relationship uh, with a bank where they've already got financial uh, facilities in place and they're starting from scratch, uh, they may very well be able to get a letter of credit, but it's going to take the time it would take to apply for a loan. So it could be 45, 60 days. And, you know, in the context of what we talked about uh, in terms of timing with the stay of enforcement, it, uh, it can be a, a critical component. And those are, those are the type of things as we're going through these various forms of collateral that we discuss with the client, because sometimes clients will have multiple forms of collateral that they have available uh, but we also have to view it in context of timing and then also cost. Um, co the cost of a letter of credit is, or I should say the, a, bond, a bond secured by a letter of credit is in the same range that cash is. Um, depending, It really depends on the size of the judgment. We've, we've issued bonds for less than a half a percent on very large judgments, uh, premium rates or half a percent on very large judgments. and But I would say your average is somewhere in the 1% range. But like you said, this this might be a situation where you might have to, a, a client might potentially have to post cash first uh, in order to get this done. Although part of me says that the, a client who has a significant amount of cash to post probably has an existing relationship with a bank that might make you know, getting that letter of credit easier, but clearly there's some time frames there that, that yeah, and we've, that I mean, might be we've even come across very, very wealthy um, individuals or, or uh, companies that have established relationships, and just because of banks' processes, ends up taking two weeks, and it's just the bank bureaucracy, exactly. right? Yeah. And and it's really not a matter of if it's going to be approved, but just you know, going through that bureaucracy as you described, and so. Um, Sometimes it can just make sense to go that route, uh, like you mentioned, of of posting the cash and then and then later substituting the letter of credit. The other thought on letters of credit that I was going to mention is the sometimes banks will require the letter of credit to be secured by cash, and in those cases, we always tell people it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to secure a letter of credit, pay a fee for that, and then pay a fee for the bond. So, Right. That's just two layers of institutions that have to make some money off the process, right? right? It, it, it's much more cumbersome, and so you're, you're much better off in that scenario of, of just posting the cash with the, uh, the uh, surety company. Okay. All right. So that's, that's, that's two. I think you'd said yes. there's four. So uh, third one is, is real estate. Uh, Real estate uh, is probably the least known form of collateral that is available. And part of the reason that is, is there are really only two surety companies in the entire U.S. market that will accept real estate as collateral for supersedious bonds. Um, it's, it's a very niche part of the business and um, something that, is there's not a lot of institutional knowledge because there's appeal bonds in and of themselves are already a very limited uh, subset of the overall surety industry. They only equate for about 
2% of the overall surety industry and real estate is even a smaller fraction of that. So there just, it doesn't lend itself to having many companies that have the expertise in it. So, um, for those reasons, I think a lot of people are just unaware that that's even, no, that, that even makes a lot of sense. Um, we work with both of those companies. Uh, there's, there's one in particular that is uh, very, very adept at, at doing it. Um, they'd probably do more of it than, than the, uh, the other does. And they will consider most forms of real estate being residential, commercial and a variety of types of commercial, uh, retail, office, industrial. Um, the more generic the property is, the the easier um, it is and the more value that can be placed on that property because the underwriting from their perspective uh, in terms of finding comparables and assessing the value becomes much easier. The more unique the property or, or where there's codes and compliance, those get tricky and sometimes uh, just can't be accepted. We've had situations like hospitals that have wanted to post uh, that property, and because they're highly regulated, it it, it uh, and there's not many buyers, and, and difficult to assess the value it can be. Those can be a challenge. Mm -hmm. But you're you know if there was a two unit uh, apartment complex um, in a, a highly desirable area, those can be very very worthwhile options to look into. Um, there are, I mean, to, to oversimplify the, the more marketable, the property, the more attractive it is to the surety, exactly right? right? So, yeah. so, um, the process for that is, I would say very similar to applying for a, a home loan. Uh, you're, the, the surety is going to first need to just assess the property themselves. And so we generally just start with getting either a, a one page sheet filled out with some simple things like the, the address and um, a couple of descriptions of the property and, and the client's estimated value. And then the surety looks at that to determine whether they think there's enough equity to uh, use to secure the bond amount that's required. And if they do from that initial assessment, then they'll take the next steps, which are ordering preliminary title reports to check the title. And then they, they do require appraisals in almost all circumstances. There are exceptions when the property far outweighs the, the bond that's required. And it's very easy. The, the value is easily ascertainable by the surety company. Uh, and then the, once the appraisal process is done, if it comes back in line with what they originally anticipated, then they will move forward and get title insurance and ultimately file a deed on the property. And so it, like I said, really functions like securing a loan timeframe wise too. It, it is similar. We, we generally tell people to budget 30 to 45 days because of the process that mm -hmm. it's really not the surety's side that takes very long. It's oftentimes coordinating the appraisal and, and title and all those sort of things. Um, the, the cost for using real estate is more expensive than with the other forms of collateral we've discussed because of the market risk and illiquid nature of real estate. So uh, the rates are generally between three and four percent. Oftentimes, they're 
on the higher end of 4%. Mm-hmm. A little riskier right. for the surety. And something I guess I should add in is all of the rates we're talking about are charged annually for uh, supersedious bonds. They uh, The initial premium is, once the bond is issued, is, is completely earned and non-refundable. Then when the bonds renew annually, the surety will provide a prorated return premium if the case is concluded midterm. So on, on each anniversary of the bond that the premium is due, and it, is it the same each year? It is, correct. Okay, so the fourth type is securities? Yeah, marketable securities. Uh, like I said previously, it's those consist of stock and bonds um, and non-retirement accounts. The Essentially what the surety does in these cases is they are taking what they refer to as an account control or pledge agreement from a brokerage firm, essentially pledging those assets to uh, secure the bond. And the, the first step in that process is for the client to provide a copy of their most recent brokerage statement so the surety company can review the holdings. And they, the surety company generally will want to stick to holdings that are more generic, uh, high, high quality and high value. Uh, examples being you know, stock mutual fund index, uh, S&P 500 type uh, funds and uh, or bond portfolios that are, again, you know, conservative, uh, might be government or U.S. treasuries or things of that nature. So they're generally going to want to look at more conservative and easily, easily valued uh, assets that they can anticipate what a potential market fluctuation might look like during the time that they are holding mm-hmm. these assets. Uh, the account, the assets do remain in the, the account of the, um, the client. So they, they aren't actually transferred to the surety. And, and there are times where the surety will actually allow them to have limited trading authority. Uh, so they can actually continue to operate their investments as they, you know, typically may have been. The that's obviously advantageous to the client because there's really no change for them in terms of the you know what they're able to do with their investments. Uh, the the surety sometimes will step in if there's significant or material changes to uh, what the investments are are being shifted to subsequent to a bond. But you know in general the um, client can continue to operate. And and the big advantage for the client in these circumstances is they don't have to sell the securities um, where that that could potentially trigger tax consequences and also mm-hmm. uh, the inability to continue earning the returns that they have been on their investments. Oh, yeah. That, it can it can be a bad time sometimes to liquidate securities, right? right. So this uh, sort of thing's allows things to continue the status quo at the investments until until there's an issue, until they need to be liquidated, right? right. And and then by that time the client may have other resources that they, you know, we, we we get situations where someone's in the process of selling a property or waiting on a distribution or, you know, some other means by which they're going to get the liquid assets to 
potentially pay a judgment. Uh, and this, you know, enables them the, the time to wait on those things to happen rather than liquidate things now prematurely, you know, and if they win the appeal, then obviously they never have to liquidate. So um, it can be helpful in that, those, those respects. The, the biggest thing that comes up with these, uh, this process is getting the account control or, or pledge agreement in place because sometimes the, the surety is kind of like a bank line of credit. The surety and the brokerage have to agree on the terms that are in there. And there are certain brokerages that sureties have more favorable experience with. Uh, those, those change over time though, because compliance or, you know, people will come in and, and change the agreements and then they have to be renegotiated. So um, that's the, the biggest hurdle. However, there, there are certain brokerage firms that a surety has uh, very consistent experience with that in a worst case scenario that an agreement couldn't be arrived at between the surety and the brokerage, the client could actually transfer their portfolio to another brokerage that the surety has an acceptable agreement with. And there, there generally are not uh, really many costs associated with doing that. And it doesn't trigger any tax liability in doing so. So there, there are plenty of ways to work around uh, making that option work. And where do marketable securities fit on the on the premium range uh, as compared to some of the other things? They are generally on the higher end uh, in the three to four percent range, but it de- depends on the holdings. Uh, a a marketable securities account that has entirely U.S. Treasuries, especially short-term U.S. Treasuries, uh, is we can probably have the ability to negotiate a much lower rate than say an S&P 500 uh, stock index fund uh, because of the natural fluctu- market fluctuations that would happen in that type of investment. So um, there's two things there. One is the premium rate will be different in those two scenarios, but also the amount that has to be in the account would differ in those two scenarios, again, because of the fluctuation. So uh, you might, the surety might require twice as much in the account for the S&P 500 index because of the potential fluctuation that could occur during the appeal versus the uh, scenario where you have U.S. Treasuries. They might require dollar for dollar, you know, equivalent to the bond amount in that type of situation. Because if we could predict the fluctuation of the stock market, we would be in good I shape. I think we'd right? both be in different businesses. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> well, so it sounds to me like the the uh, back to my question from a while ago. The, the underwriting process is not entirely, but primarily about evaluating the the value and the marketability and the reliability of the collateral. That's correct. All right. So, and, and I think that the, the fact that it, it took us this long to discuss uh, some of the different collateral types sort of reemphasizes that it's best to start this process as early as possible. And uh, so I assume that when I uh, put my client in touch with you, when they're looking for a bond, this is the type of conversations that, that you start with, right? Is what, 
what sorts of collateral do you want to use? What's available? And you get into that analysis of whether it's something that you're a surety that you work with can bond and what the premiums might be. That's exactly right. I mean, I think what a lot of people don't realize is there's a, as you can tell by the length of the conversation we've had already, that there's a lot to these conversations. Uh, you know, some of them are more straightforward and quick, but, but for people that have multiple options and uh, various preferences, you know, which is one of the things we are um, always incorporating into the conversation is there, there's a lot to the conversation uh, with respect to evaluating all the, the different things that both from the surety's underwriting perspective, but also from the, the client's preferences perspective. And sometimes the client has real limitations that need to be worked around. You, you know, we get cases of family law cases where there's uh, a trust involved and, you know, money can't be necessarily removed from certain accounts, but they can perhaps get a bank letter of credit or, you know, think, uh, things of those nature where um, we can evaluate the entire set of circumstances and help the client understand what the options are and then try to arrive at a, um, a mutually agreeable um, decision on how best to move forward and do that in a relatively short amount of time because you, you've got to make these decisions relatively quickly. Uh, so giving them the ability to make an informed decision quickly is, is really the priority. I think we did, you know, the only other comment on marketable securities that maybe I'd mention that might be useful for the audience is mm -hmm. there are times where uh, people can get a letter of credit secured by a marketable securities account. And while we talked about letters of credit, not necessarily not making sense to do that in the case of a uh, using cash, um, it can make sense to secure a letter of credit by marketable securities because the bank fee plus the surety's fee in that case might be less than uh, what the surety might charge in order to take that risk of, of securing the marketable securities account. Uh, the The only limitation there is not the brokerage doesn't always have the ability to issue a letter of credit if they're not tied to a bank. Merrill Lynch and Wells Fargo, or, or I'm sorry, Merrill Lynch and Bank of America are an example of a, a uh, brokerage that sometimes can use their bank affiliate to issue a letter of credit secured by a uh, Merrill Lynch account. Uh, but Fidelity, for example, doesn't have a, a banking affiliate that with the uh, ability to issue a letter of credit. So um, there are times where that can make sense when when the circumstances are right. And that's just another avenue that we will uh, discuss with clients. No, that's great. Uh, no, I appreciate all that. And it, it definitely uh, drives home the point that there's, there's a lot to talk about in this area. And there are a lot of options. And uh, the the, the sooner I can put my client in touch with with you or somebody like you, the the better it is for them because there there are a lot of different ways this this puzzle can be solved uh, that probably aren't immediately obvious to That's people. Right. Now let me ask you about what about when we are on the other end of one of these situations and we are we represent a, a client who's a you know successful appellee and is now looking uh, to the appellant or to the surety for payment. Um, What's the best way to 
to go about that if the if the appellant's lawyer is dragging their feet on payment uh, how does one go about starting to you know make a claim on the surety bond the so the best way is to contact the surety directly uh, and uh, provide the bond number the case information and any supporting information particularly if it's been you know, the judgment has been affirmed, um, provide any of that information that can be included and essentially just make a demand to the surety. Um, in those cases, the surety has an immediate duty to investigate and respond uh, to the, the claim. And in these situations, the, the with supersedious bonds, the obviously in, the investigating is, is generally very limited because they're, the facts are generally pretty straightforward. There are times where they can uh, be some disagreements, you know, whether it be over the interest calculation or things of that nature, um, some various uh, nuances relating to the case or the calculation of what is exactly owed. But even in those situations, oftentimes what sureties will do is ascertain the amount that is undisputed and get that paid as quickly as possible, and then try to figure out the rest after that. So contacting the surety directly with that information should get the process started relatively quickly. Yeah, having done some surety claims work in other areas, you know, sometimes there are questions and investigations and, you know, we have to hire engineers and consultants and all that to figure out whether the surety is liable. But this is not entirely black and white, but I would say that the claims process and, and surety and supersedious bonds is, is fairly right. straightforward. And, and that's something as a, a broker, we evaluate to both, you know, from the standpoint of our client, which is, you know, the appellee, but um, it, knowing that these situations are going to arise, we generally try to gravitate more towards those surety companies that have very strong claims and legal counsel um, to handle these in a, a very professional and, and uh, expedient manner for, for all concerned. Yeah, I'm curious, is the process much different in states other than Florida? In terms of the underwriting or just the... the uh, I mean, the, the, the general bonding process for public bonds. The main, two main differences would be the, the stay provisions, whether there's any automatic stay granted, mm -hmm. and then the amount of the bond required. Uh, California, as an example, the, the bond amount is actually much higher. The, the requirement is one and a half times the judgment amount. Um, there's even states like New Mexico where the bond amount's even higher. I think it's two times the bond amount. So those are probably the some of the sig wow. more significant differences. Outside of that, the uh, underwriting parts of it are are relatively the same. And that includes federal court. Wow, one and a half times the bound of bond amount is pretty onerous. That's that's a lot, depending on the size it is. of the judgment. It can be very, very significant. And it, you know, the, the statutory interest comes into play. I don't know. Do you know the stat what the statutory interest right now in Florida is? Uh it's I don't know. Okay. It's low though that, right now. That can play a, <laughs> that usually is one of the bigger bigger factors in those bond amounts. Like in California off the top of my head, I think it's 9%. Um, and in New Mexico, I want to say yeah. it might be 
12 or 15 percent so that's that's the biggest part playing into those those multiples that are used we used to be there but florida is that we've tied our prejudgment interest rate to you know certain economic indicators and so it makes makes it very hard to yeah. know what the rate is yes. at any given time <laughs> you kind of uh, got to look it up quarterly i'm thinking it's in like okay. the four percent range it's it's pretty low we, we used to be nine twelve yeah. you know percent but sure. uh, yeah that makes a big difference well dan if someone needs your services what's the best way for them uh, to get a hold of you either by email or phone um email is just dan at commercial surety dot com uh or they can they can always reach out to us directly uh, our office line is 714-516-1232 great hey dan i really appreciate you being on the podcast it's a lot of information i think um i think the surety lawyers you know will will learn something from this and, and find it pretty interesting it's always kind of interesting to learn how other people's businesses work and this is a lot of uh you know, banking and financial information, but it all makes a lot of sense and will help us to, uh, you know, understand this process better in the future. And uh, I really appreciate your appreciate time and, and sharing this info uh, with us. You pointed out it's a very small part of the, the, the appeal process, but it can be a very important one and, and one that there's so much to that, that uh, very few people get exposed to it very often. So I appreciate the opportunity to be here and, and give a glimpse into the, the surety world. Great. Hey, thanks, Dan. Thanks to Dan Huckabee for being my guest on the Issues on Appeal podcast. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice. Nothing that I say or my guests say should be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you're a lawyer that needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help you. You can contact me at Issues on Appeal on Twitter or at my professional email, D-D-A-I-K-E-R, at shoemaker.com. My contact information is always in the show notes. It's available in your podcast player and on the web. Now, people have been asking me, how is the show doing? And my answer is, a lot better than I thought it would. I set out to find a really niche audience, Florida appellate lawyers, and I seem to have found a bunch of them. I'm getting about 200 unique downloads per episode, a little bit more, and pretty sure my wife and my mom have stopped listening a while ago. So I'm really happy with the numbers. Thanks to all of you who are listening. You know, with podcasting, you really don't know who is listening. I know almost all of you are in the United States. No surprise. Uh, I know that more than half of you are listening on Apple Podcasts, which makes a lot of sense too. But I'd love to hear from all of you. So please do drop me an email or a tweet or a Facebook post. I hope you're following the show's Facebook page and our Twitter account. I promise I won't spam you too much. I usually only post a couple times a week mostly just to tease and to announce new episodes. I've hit on a bunch of the obvious topics so far, but with episode 10 coming up, I've still got a lot of ideas, and there's no end in sight just yet. So, actually, it might really start to get interesting from here now that we've hit some of the big topics. I've got another great show coming up in two weeks. As always, thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.